ottaa mukaan mun uudelleen. Viranomaiset saa mua turhaan etsiä. Chuck's not here, man. This is hell. Live from uh, the sink of humanity, slowly but certainly draining. Uh, not draining, no, we're circling the drain, that's what we are. <sighs> oh man, oh man, what a time to be alive. Um, yeah, this, uh, welcome to This Is Hell. Uh, this is obviously not Chuck, because... Chuck has left us. Um, he has passed on to a better place. <laughs> uh, oh man, I, I, I shouldn't make jokes like that. That is that is not cool. No, Chuck has not. I mean, yes, he has left us, but he has just left the, the town, the city. Uh, he has not even left the country. Uh, he's just over there, over yonder, beyond the lake. Um, lake Michigan, that is. In Michigan on another lake that is not Lake Michigan, and, uh, yeah, there he is having a vacation while us button monkeys are, uh, over here pushing buttons and, um, blarbing, uh, inane banter in the microphone the way I'm doing right now. <sighs> yeah, so, last night I was lying in bed Obviously, I mean, I don't know, I guess. Um, like, having a bunch of weird symptoms, and now uh, I thought I would maybe have COVID, but I'm still here. My sense of smell is actually not as bad as I thought it would be. Um, I'm sitting upright without uh, having to tie myself down. I don't know. I don't know. Like these days, like whenever I get anything, I'm like, oh my god, now it's now it's COVID, and then it's not, or maybe it's not. Who knows? Um, I took a test; it was negative. But uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but uh, <laughs> those take-home tests, holy camoly, they are not really, really reliable in any way, shape, or form. And so, uh, yeah, like, whenever I take one of these at-home tests, I'm just like, okay, it's kind of a crapshoot, because they produce so many false negatives that you really can never be quite sure whether or not you have COVID or, or not, um, because of, I don't know, like, if you go into the weeds, there's, like, especially if you're vaccinated, apparently the vaccination can keep the virus levels down enough that you don't get seriously sick, but because you don't get seriously, like, you don't get seriously sick, that also means that there's not enough virus in your body, even if you have COVID, for these at-home antigen tests to detect it. So, even if you have it, even if you have symptoms that say 
that really scream it from the rooftops that you have COVID, those tests can still come up, come up negative just because of the way that, yeah, they don't really work and it's super frustrating and, uh, yeah, and I wish this stupid pandemic would just finally pass on, but as long as we don't behave as if there was still a global pandemic going on, it won't. So, yeah, it's gonna be sticking with us for a while. Also, now we have monkeypox rearing its uh, curiously dotted but kind of cute little head. No, <laughs> I'm just imagining that a monkeypox virus looks like a cute little monkey, uh, which it probably doesn't. Um, likely, probably, yeah. Am I making sense? Am I still here? Is my brain mush already? Uh, it's Monday morning, uh, it's raining out, and I, I don't even know what I'm doing. But then again, does anybody, um, yeah, uh, so, dear listening audience, we do this week, unlike last week, where we, honestly, I don't even know what happened, we just didn't have a question from hell, which, blame it on me, blame it on me, I'm the lead producer, the buck stops with me. So, if you want anyone to put blame on, just say, Seb, yes, screwed up. And I'm like, you got me. I, I screwed up. But this week, we do have a brand new, fresh, mint condition question from hell. And this week's question from hell is, what ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War Three? In memory of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and that shows a an image of um, I think this is Operation Crossroads, a uh, nuclear test. In uh, well, because it's early August, and early August means it's the yearly anniversary of one of America's worst war crimes: dropping nuclear bombs on civilian populations of Japan. If you disagree with this sentiment, yeah, you can write me a complaint or something, I don't care. Or, I don't know, we can have a discussion over whether or not dropping the atomic bombs in Japan was a war crime or not. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it can still say it was. You know, it's uh, war usually does not happen without one side or the other or both committing war crimes. That is kind of the name of the game. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I will have answers to uh, this, your answers to uh, this week's question from hell. What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War II, World War Three, World War Four? I don't know. Who's counting? Um... What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War Three? I will have answers to this week's question from hell after uh, the interview that I'm, I will be playing shortly. Um, then also, it's Monday, so traditionally on Monday we have um, this week's Hangover Cure. Um, but usually that is Chuck who researches those, so I would just have to basically come up with one off the top of my head which is a lie because I've been thinking about a hangover cure on my way here. So, uh, this week's hangover cure is just don't drink. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that is what well, now you're now you're telling me, but Seb, that is not really helpful because if you have a hangover, you want a hangover cure, then somebody coming in just saying don't drink. Well, but here's what, Bucko. If I if you have a bad hangover and you come to me and you ask me, well, what can I do to to make this better? And I tell you, you know what, kid? How about you just don't drink? And you get a little angry at me about that. And at least for a short second, a short moment, fleeting, your hangover woes are forgotten. At least momentarily. So that makes this week's hangover cure dumb comments on hangovers. Ah, oh man. Yeah, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at our own jokes since 1996. Uh, this is indeed hell. Uh, yeah, this week's, um, this week's, today's interview, the interview that I will be playing today is, uh, April 16, 2016 interview uh, by post-colonial studies professor Ashley Dawson uh, on domination, extinction, and capitalism's long history of slaughter. So, as usually, sunshiny, happy topics here at This Is Hell. Um, so... I'm picking this, among other things, because, well, the planet is on fire, um, and or drowning, sometimes at the same time, which is very fun. Um, yeah, and, uh, I've chosen this interview because of that topic, because, well, it's global warming, mass extinctions, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, but then also, it's, uh, it's another one that ongoing series of um, interviews and guests that we have had on here that talk about like in some way or the other about the concept of degrowth um, which personally if I listen to people talk to us about degrowth I always think it's a good thing and then I uh, listen to other voices around the um, progressive left-leaning internet and uh, a lot of people are saying yeah you know degrowth that's actually kind of classist and it's not really helpful and da, 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 da. I'm like okay but both of these arguments I have some point surely to some degree uh and yeah and I, I don't really know I don't really know I don't really know where I stand there ultimately because I'm like okay the endless growth of capitalism, the, that 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 dictum, that paradigm, we we do live on a finite planet, and capitalism dictates that we grow eternally, <laughs> exponentially. Now, I think the best sort of like summary or argument against the uh, endless capitalist cancerous growth that I've heard was not actually about the environment, but it was about um, employment. Uh, because basically, endless capitalist growth means that all the workers that are around have to keep on working more at all times. Like, work hours, work output, productivity, and all that nonsense has to always keep on growing, keep on chugging along, keep on expanding. Um, 
because that's just what the, the system demands. But at the same time, all the workers are also consumers. And uh, all the consumers also need to always consume more. Um, so we need an endless increase in work hours. But at the same time, we also need an endless increase in leisure time because we need time to consume. Because consumption doesn't really... I mean, so, okay, granted, yeah, sure. Like, if I'm sitting here and I'm producing whatever, especially if I'm at an office job, I can just uh, tab over to, I don't know, Amazon.com or whatever nonsense. Today's This Is Hell is sponsored by Amazon. No, we're not. We're, we're not. We're still not sponsored by anybody. Nobody gives us anything except for you people, uh, which is why we're having a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash this is hell to um, give us your hard-earned dollars so that we can grow a little. Um, anyway, where was I going with this? Yeah, so like basically if, if the paradigm of endless growth is followed, then everybody needs to A, work more all the time, and B, always consume more. And um, working and consumption at the same time is usually frowned upon um, because, you know, I mean, you, of course you can buy, I don't know, the new Minions movie. This is hell sponsored by the new Minions movie. Um, no, we're not. Uh, it wouldn't even want to be. But then again, the new Minions movie is also a sign that this is hell. Um, Jesus, Sebastian, focus. <laughs> uh... So, consumption and work at the same time is not really um, something that, that, that is supposed to be happening, right? So, um, that, like, and so, like, endless growth in terms of consumption and work hours cannot happen. And it's also, and there's also, like, another thing, that another argument that um, Michael Pollan, who writes uh, books about food history, um, uh, has made, that uh, one of the reasons why American f Americans are so obese on average, is that America is a capitalist country, and uh, America's food producers follow a capitalist, di uh, a, a capitalist, you know, dictum, and that capitalist dictum says grow eternally, and that means that ultimately those food producers produce more and more calories that have to find a market, and American that means Americans ultimately have to, because they're living in a capitalist country consume more and more and more calories, although the population doesn't grow exponentially along with the way that the calorie output of the capitalist system grows. And so we get to obesity because, well, how people have to grow. Which just, uh, that's another thing that makes you say... Jesus Christ, this is hell. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not gonna do any of trying to do any of Chuck's uh, usual dumb enough to live and so on and so forth things because I haven't written it down and so I couldn't do that real justice. Um, and so I'll just transition now uh, to the interview. Very organic, very um, natural. So, yeah, here is from 2016 Ashley Dawson talking to Chuck Wirtz about capitalism, extinction, and slaughter.
This is hell. Life is going extinct on planet Earth at the fastest rate in human history or in all of history. Species are dying off, and our next guest believes he has discovered the radical reason why this is happening. Fortunately, our guest also has a radical solution. Here to tell us about the big die-off and what can be done about it, Ashley Dawson is the author of Extinction, A Radical History. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ashley. Hi there, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on our show. Ashley is a professor of English at the City University of New York. Prior to Extinction, A Radical History, Ashley was author of The Routledge concise history of 20th century British literature. Ashley also wrote 2007's Mongrel Nation, Diasporic Culture and the uh, Making of Post-Colonial Britain. You can uh, find out more about Ashley by going to ashleydawson.info. You write about Satao, an African elephant with a rare genetic strain that produced tusks so long that they dangled to the ground, making him a prime attraction in Kenya's Savo East National Park. These beautiful tusks also made him particularly valuable to ivory poachers. You describe Sitao's slaughter and add, if the present rate of slaughter continues, one of the two species of African elephants, the forest elephant, whose numbers have declined by 60% since 2002, is likely to be gone from Africa within a decade. Ashley, how much do you blame not the poachers themselves for their individual action, but global demand for the threat of extinction? I think it's really important to think about what's been happening in places um, like Kenya, um, rather than just uh, trying to tackle the poachers themselves, to think about you know, why they're behaving that way, what the kind of institutional context is. You know? um, so I think we need to be aware of how countries like Kenya have been decimated economically by years of structural adjustment, um, how they've been in many cases flooded with weapons uh, as a result of the Cold War. And, you know, there are various different insurgent groups fighting there at the moment who are trying to export uh, these materials to wealthy countries um, in order to support their insurgency. So there's a, a real kind of coming together, a conjunction that is very, very dangerous and that's um, targeting a lot of these charismatic megafauna. But I think it's important to note that it's not simply that certain species are going extinct, uh, although that's a very important problem, but rather that all of life is being decimated and that when particular species drop below a certain threshold, the entire ecosystems which they inhabit are impoverished and often sort of go through a tipping point where they go into irreversible decline. Um, so, you know, we usually think about sort of charismatic megafauna, and I start with Fatal, as you say, you know, this beautiful elephant, and his killing was obviously tragic. But I try and sort of expand from that and say that this problem of poaching is linked to um, much more foundational processes um, in the global economy. You write, as they spread across the planet, Homo sapiens decimated populations of megafauna everywhere they went. Humanity essentially ate its way down the food chain when wiping out biodiversity. We are witnessing the real destruction of the world's remaining megafauna, the endgame of an epic of an epoch of epic defaunation or animal slaughter. Are we, in your opinion, are we more likely to eat ourselves out of house and home or to burn it down through climate change? Mm. Well, I, that's, uh, I, we'll see. It's going to be quite a race. 
the finish in that regard. I, I basically, the reason I wanted to talk about extinction is I think that climate change has been getting a lot more attention and that there's a lot more kind of political movement around it, particularly in relatively wealthy nations like the U.S. But there are a whole series of critical thresholds that I would argue industrial capitalism is pushing the planet across. Um, and some of them uh, are kind of hard to be aware of, you know, the interruption of the phosphorus cycle, something that you know doesn't occur to most people as an important um, issue. Uh, however, it is pretty critical because um, we rely on phosphorus for fertilizers. Um, and obviously, if we don't uh, have fertilizers, we're not going to be able to have crops. So um, that's one issue. Um, Extinction is another one of these sort of vital thresholds that we're pushing the planet across. Um, and as you mentioned at the outset, the numbers are really, really shocking. We're losing about 100 species a day. And over the last 50 years, we've seen uh, depletion of about 50% of the flora and fauna on the planet. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the statistics are really shocking. Um, and what I try to argue in the book, though, is that there's a much longer history. Uh, as you just said, we, you know, as human beings, have been hunting uh, uh, charismatic megafauna for a very long time. And there are records showing that when human beings spread out of Africa, we essentially destroyed a lot of the big animals. Um, and if you look back to the arrival of human beings in North America about 13,000 years or so ago, we destroyed a lot of the um, large animals like giant sloths, for instance. Um, so I, I want to acknowledge that there is this much kind of longer history of pushing animals to extinction. But having done that, what I really focused on in the book is the way in which these tendencies have been amped up to a crisis point by industrial capitalism over the last 200 years in general, and most particularly since 1945. That's when the really mass extinction wave um, uh, takes off. What do we miss in our understanding of the many environmental crises that we face today when we don't consider mass extinction? What happens when we only look at those crises through a lens of climate change and not mass extinction? Well, I think it's a problem to... Um, think about Earth uh, in, with one system in isolation. You know, we're pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere um, as part of a system of uh, capital accumulation, right? But that system is also producing a whole series of other effects. And one of the reasons that animals are going extinct in such large numbers are because certain spots where biodiversity is concentrated are being decimated. Those spots tend to be in post-colonial nations. You, earlier on, we mentioned Kenya. And one might also think about places like Indonesia um, and uh, Brazil, which have tropical rainforests that have really unparalleled biodiversity. Um, and, you know, those sites are targeted by forms of extraction um, today of uh, logging and um, you know, various different other forms of extraction that are decimating um, those areas. And so we need to think about something like climate change in connection to these broader assaults on the planet. Um, and we need to think about these things as a product of 
capitalism. That's my my essential argument because I think that if we think about extinction in too broad terms, we don't understand what's really driving it. You know, that's why I wanted to call my book uh, a radical history. Uh, I want to think about radical in the sense of um, going to the to the roots of it and really understanding. The, the driving force behind extinction, and I argue that it's, um, it's capitalism. Um, and I think that's important because all too often, things like extinction and climate change, for that matter, too, are thought of in very broad terms as something that humanity in general is responsible for. I don't know if you've heard the term the Anthropocene. Um, it's this notion that we've entered a new geological epoch in which humanity's imprint on the planet is going to be visible in the geological record. Um, but there's a real problem with that kind of term because uh, it raises the question, humanity in general, is it humanity in general that is creating climate change and extinction and you know pushing us through these various other thresholds that I mentioned before? Or is it the 1%? Um, you know, both in the global north and also to a certain extent in um, global south countries. Um, and so I think we need to understand what the forces that are driving these various different um, crises points are. You mentioned several past guests on our show on This Is Hell in your book, including Elizabeth Colbert, who wrote The Sixth Extinction, and Christian Perenni, who's been on our show several times. You write about what Christian calls the tropics of chaos in the region where he sees a catastrophic convergence, a supremely destructive alignment of three factors. One, militarization and ethnic fragmentation related to the legacy of the Cold War and post-colonial nations. Two, state failure and civil discord linked to the structural adjustment policies imposed on the global south by institutions like the World Bank in the name of debt repayment since the 1980s, and three, climate change-fueled environmental stresses such as desertification. You add, we cannot understand the uh, catastrophic convergence, that is, without discussing the decimation of biodiversity currently unfolding in the global south. Nor, conversely, can we understand extinction without an analysis of the exploitation and violence to which post-colonial nations have been subjected. Is What is the link between colonialism and extinction. Did one set the wheels in motion for the other? Yes, absolutely. Um, so if you go back to um, what is often called um, the sort of Colombian exchange, you know, when, when Columbus discovered, quote unquote, the new world, uh, you know, the real outset of European colonization, he brought along with him a whole series of different species that had not been previously known in the New World. And so while Columbus and the conquistadors that followed him were quite obviously um, intent on uh, rapine and domination of indigenous peoples and are responsible for um, uh, forms of genocide that consigned really huge numbers of indigenous peoples um, to their deaths, uh, there were also unintended forms of destruction of flora and fauna that were produced. So, for instance, you know, the Spanish brought pigs to the Caribbean and other parts of the New World, and they ate up a lot of the indigenous flora and pushed out uh, many life forms. And so there's a huge shift of and transfer of what biologists call invasive species into the New World. And that kind of process has continued uh, and continues today. So um, globalization 
many people think of globalization as people flying around the planet, and to a certain extent that's true. But one of the prime ways that globalization happens is through gigantic uh, ships that take containers, these you know, huge containers, um, from port to port. Um, and those ships have to take on water, sort of ballast water, um, in order to sail across the sea. And when they arrive in port, they discharge that water. And when they do that, a lot of the organisms in the water uh, get transferred to new areas. So there's a lot of um, sort of unwitting forms of extinction and sort of transfer of invasive species that go on today. Uh, that said, though, in my book, I also talk about the tradition of ecocide, that is the sort of conscious destruction of the environment, which is also a part of industrial capitalism. Yes, and you mentioned the the impact of empire building throughout our history and that impact on uh, the planet and the environment. You write, while it may be true that humanity's capacity to transform the planet on a significant scale through mass extinction dates back many millennia rather than simply two centuries, and that the Anthropocene therefore needs to be backdated substantially. It is only with the invention of hierarchical societies such as the Sumerian Empire that practices of defaunation and habitat destruction became so sweeping as to degrade large ecosystems to the point of collapse. The history of Egypt suggests that under the right material and cultural circumstances, human beings can achieve relatively sustainable relationships with the natural world. It is the combination of militarism, debauched and feckless elites, and imperial expansionism through which the Sumerians laid waste to much of the Fertile Crescent in pre-modern times that renders ecocide so toxic as to destroy the very civilizations that carried it out. The collapse of ecocidal imperial structures should serve as a potent warning to the globe-straddling world powers of today. So if our history is littered with empires that have committed what you call ecocide, if, if that's the case, what explains to you why we never learn the lesson about our impact on nature and that empires still continue to try to grow, even though, from what you write here, it seems like there is no way that they'll be sustainable and that they commit ecocide? Mm. Well, okay, I think there are two factors. Uh, the one factor which I discussed in quite a lot of detail is the specific dynamic of industrial capitalism. So. As you just mentioned, I talk about the ancient world um, and the way in which, um, you know, places like Iraq, which we think of as very much desert, and also North Africa, which was a province of the Roman Empire, you know, both these places are, are now seen as desert countries, um, but they weren't always that way. They were driven to that condition by empires that tried to extract as much as possible from those places. So I argue that there's a kind of ideological mindset to empires um, and to uh, a kind of settler colonial attitude that we can just expand as much as possible. That was the way that the Roman Empire worked, you know, that when they needed more gold in their treasury, they would just go off and try and conquer a new section of the world. Um, eventually, you know, they ran up against military constraints and um, uh, also environmental constraints. And I, I argue that those environmental constraints, the fact that they had denuded Sicily and much of North Africa, played a really key role in the collapse of empires um, in the ancient world. But then in addition to that kind of ideological mindset, which drives empires past and present, I also argue that in the capitalist 
era, imperialism is driven by the need for capital accumulation that's ceaseless and, of course, has to be um, continuously building and augmented. So to a certain extent, capitalist powers are driven by this need to expand uh, accumulation and growth. Uh, so there's a material reason there as well as a kind of ideological mindset that drives us to this end. Sorry, you write about the mass slaughter of animals during the bread and circuses of the Roman Empire when Emperor Titus, quote, when Emperor Titus dedicated the Colosseum, for example, 9,000 animals were killed in the three-month series of gladiatorial games. Indeed, the Roman Empire was probably responsible for the greatest annihilation of large animals since the Pleistocene megafauna mass extinction. And you point out to justify the carnage of wildlife, Roman attitudes towards the natural world shifted markedly. That is from one that during the early days of the Republic, Public, Romans deg- uh, regarded the Mediterranean landscape as the sacred space of nature deities, to one that by the time Christianity became the official state religion of Rome in the late 4th century, there was little to differentiate Roman philosophy from the dominant attitude of the Judeo-Christian uh, scriptures in whose creation myth God grants human beings absolute dominion over the world he has made. Humanity, the Bible, and Christian tradition held uh, was uh, placed apart from nature by God, gifted with an immortal soul and a capacity for rational thought that legitimated the transformation of the natural world in the pursuit of human self-interest. How much do the major religions reinforce our willingness to consume our environment without the uh, necessary consideration to protect its long-term production? How much do the major religions, does Judo, uh, Judeo-Christianity reinforce the actions that, have taken, uh, that we've taken towards extinction? I think that they that they do historically. Um, you know, I think that religion, as well as philosophy and uh, you know cu- culture in general, often is tied to these material conditions and legitimates them. Um, and so, uh, the the Bible. If you've read Genesis, you know that Adam is uh, given the power by God to describe and name the animals, and by doing that, to have dominion over them. So that notion was very useful uh, when it came to the idea of being able to dominate the planet and to, by doing that, assert the right to control the planet. You know, it was taken up by subsequent writers. I talk about John Locke and his second treatise on government, where he argues that uh, the way that you assert ownership over land is by developing it. And, uh, you know, John Locke happened to own colonies in both Ireland and Virginia, so that the idea that we're going to develop the land and by doing that assert domination over that was very much a part of displacing Native Americans and, and claiming the Americas by Europeans. Um, having said that, though, I guess I would say that um, uh, religious traditions are variegated, and that there's also within the Judeo-Christian tradition, traditions of stewardship. Um, And I would say these are kind of minoritarian traditions. Um, In uh, Roman Catholicism, of course, a lot of this is associated with the Franciscan tradition, Um, although the Franciscans were very much complicit with uh, destruction of Native American cultures and a lot of forms of um, flora and fauna in the New World. Nonetheless, 
there was a tradition of um, seeing the natural world and the creatures of the natural world as our brothers and sisters. And I, I think that um, the current Pope's latest environmental encyclical reflects to a certain extent those kind of contrarian positions within the Judeo-Christian uh, world. So, you know, I wouldn't want to write off religion entirely as something that's solely destructive. I think it can be mobilized by countercurrents that try to look back to dissenting elements in the religious tradition and use those to criticize the world of heartless and relentless exploitation of the natural world that we inhabit now. You write, extinction is both a material reality and a cultural discourse that shapes popular perceptions of the world, one that often legitimates an inegalitarian social order. How can extinction legitimate an inegalitarian social order? I think that the idea that we get to dominate the earth um, and assert ourselves over animals um, is very much complicit with structures of imperialism, racism, and um, capitalist exploitation historically. So whenever uh, European colonial people wanted to dominate a culture, uh, that culture, the people who inhabited that culture, almost always were described as some form of animal. Um, and so, for instance, if you look at 19th century English representations of the Irish uh, in the years of the Great Famine, the Irish are often represented as kind of ape-like in the same sort of way that Africans were being represented when the scramble to conquer Africa was going on at the same time in the late 19th century. So, you know, we dehumanize people in order to be able to legitimate dominating them and, in many cases, killing them. And we do that by associating them with animals who, quite obviously, are devalued and who we can, uh, we feel legitimate to exploit. And, uh, you know, when we don't put them to service, um, you know, such as uh, domesticated animals, which constitute a huge majority of the kind of living uh, matter on the planet at the moment, well, if we don't have a use for them, then we see fit to just kill them, um, just to extinguish them. Uh, and so the, these kinds of structures, these kinds of ideas of domination really resonate in all sorts of different ways, including to how colonial powers treat the colonized. You write about the glaring failure of efforts to address extinction within a capitalist uh, framework. Can we stop extinction from happening within a capitalist framework? Can we, because this is one of the big things I always hear people saying that we can do in order to fight for the environment, can we green consume our way out of climate change or extinction through the capitalist system? Um, well, I think if you look at the historical record, it's, it's not good. And we've been trying to conserve relatively isolated parts of the planet for decades, and yet uh, extinction is actually speed, the rate of extinction, which is you know the, the difference between the number of species that are disappearing and what's called speciation, right? You know the, the evolution of new species. That rate is continuing to increase, uh, with about 100 species disappearing every day. I mean, it's it's really jaw dropping. So, I, uh, I would argue that. The record over the last 50 years suggests that um, the idea of conserving isolated 
spots within a global capitalist world is not working. Um, and in the book, I also look at some of the cutting edge ideas for conservation, which I think are, are interesting and, and exciting. And people are, for many reasons, looking for hope today in very bleak times. So they're quite compelling. I talk about, uh, on the one hand, rewilding, and on the other hand, regenesis. So rewilding, very briefly, is the idea of taking areas um, that have been dominated by people and trying to bring them back to some natural state, uh, often by reintroducing predators that are at the top of the ecosystems. So an example of that would be putting wolves back in Yellowstone. What the wolves did was to you know, prey on elk and other um, big herbivores, and by diminishing those numbers, they help bring back a whole series of different plants and birds and other species further down the food chain. And so they really led to this kind of revival of um, the, the ecosystem in Yellowstone. And so that, that's being tried in various different parts of the world um, at the moment, uh, in North America and in Europe particularly. So that's one effort, the rewilding effort. And the other effort is... Um, Regenesis, which is using cutting-edge synthetic biology to bring back extinct species like the carrier pigeon and the woolly mammoth. So I have a critique in the book of both of those efforts. Um, rewilding, I say, is very interesting and, and could possibly um, be used in many different places. The problem is that it's mainly being talked about, as I mentioned, in North America and, and Europe. And while people are advocating for it, Places like the Amazon or the Congo rainforest or the Indonesian rainforest continue to be decimated. In fact, you know, the speed of decimation, although in the Amazon um, deforestation tailed off for a few years, it's picking back up again. So um, why is it that we're only thinking about rewilding in the global north? It may have to do with tourism and making money. Um, so that's my critique of rewilding. I also... I'm critical of regenesis. Um, uh, if you bring back something like the carrier pigeon, not to mention the woolly mammoth, um, you're going to bring it back to a habitat which is totally transformed from the original habitat um, and you know, not particularly propitious to the survival of these species. So we're likely to spend a great deal of time and effort and capital on bringing these species back and just to see them snuffed out once again. And in fact, I argue that regenesis in many ways seems like a kind of Trojan horse to legitimate synthetic biology, which there's a lot of venture capital from Silicon Valley going into these days because of the potential for making a lot of money in uh, changing human genomes. Um, and I think that we really need to think very carefully about um, transforming heritable human uh, genetics. My sister is a biologist, and she's been writing a lot about synthetic biology lately, and she is uh, cautious, <laughs> very, uh, very, uh, very cautious about the uh, prospects for uh, uh, for synthetic biology. Are you using the word regenesis? I just want to make sure for this next quote here. Are you using the word regenesis uh, in, ex you know, is you substituting that for de-extinction? Does that mean the same thing? Yes. Yeah, so so okay. um, regenesis comes from George Church. Um, 
Okay, so uh, you write that de-extinction offers a seductive but dangerously diluting techno-fix for an environmental crisis generated by the systemic contradictions of capitalism. It is not simply that de-extinction draws attention and economic resources away from other efforts to conserve biodiversity as it currently exists. The fundamental problem with de-extinction is that it relies on the thoroughgoing manipulation and commodification of nature, and as such dovetails perfectly with biocapitalism. First, what do you mean by biocapitalism? Because I think this is something that people need to know about. Mm. So biocapitalism, I, I argue in the book that there's been a kind of shift um, from the 1980s on into uh, attempts to genetically engineer um, new uh, organisms. Um, and that, that had to do with the kind of crisis of capital accumulation with the onset of neoliberalism. Um, and a lot of big corporations that had been involved in manufacturing um, chemicals, for instance, you know, that were used as fertilizers um, in the 1970s that were part of U.S. power, you know, part of the Green Revolution, which the U.S. exported to a lot of the developing world, that they were not making that much money by the 1980s. Many um, developing countries were able to synthesize their own fertilizers and pesticides by that point. So there was a huge shift with big corporations um, like Monsanto going into synthetic biology and coming up with genetically modified organisms, um, you know, things uh, like the famous Terminator seeds, which go extinct, uh, you know, which stop reproducing after one cycle. So there was that big shift going, which has been going on for uh, a number of years. But recent technological innovations mean that there's a whole new field of opportunity. Um, it's gotten much easier to genetically engineer organisms um, because of technologies like CRISPR and gene drives to the point where um, scientists are talking about dealing with the spread of Zika virus as well as other diseases like malaria and dengue by making certain mosquito species extinct through genetic engineering. Um, so they can really transfer, uh, you know, basically they make um, certain mosquito species almost entirely male uh, through genetic engineering, and they're able to transfer that through an entire species like the Anopheles mosquito um, quickly enough that they'll be able to render the whole species extinct. Um, and, you know, that sounds very exciting and very important given the number of people who are dying every year from malaria, particularly in the global south. Um, however, I argue that it's quite a dangerous um, thing to be doing because we don't know what the potential ramifications of unleashing genetically modified um, species into the wild are. And there hasn't been a broader conversation about these kinds of things. And of course, it diverts capital you know, and investment away from something which we should have done a long time ago, which is to come up with a malaria vaccine. Um, over the last 40 years, only 1% of um, newly developed drugs have been for so-called neglected diseases like malaria. In other words, diseases that affect people in the global south. You write that the uh, <clears throat> biocapitalism is generated by and is deeply embedded in U.S. imperialism. And we talked to Anthony Lowenstein on this show back in December about disaster capitalism. You write, these neoliberal ideologies have come to permeate conversation, conservation to such an extent that discussions of biodiversity have become the site for the elaboration of what might be called 
disaster biocapitalism, just as the disaster capitalism described by Naomi Klein, who's been on our show in the past, seizes on political calamities to further its accumulative aims, this disaster biocapitalism takes the extinction crisis as an opportunity to ratchet up the commodification of life itself. Where have you seen disaster biocapitalism take place? Can you give us an example of disaster biocapitalism? Because those two words put together might be the two scariest words I've seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Well, you know, I've been quite active with the climate justice movement um, over the last half decade. And so I've gone to a number of the um, counter summits at the annual Conference of Parties meetings, um, you know, where there are ongoing negotiations to deal with climate change. And so at those sites, social justice movements from around the world uh, converge to try and push the negotiators to uh, adopt non-market-oriented, non-neoliberal approaches. Uh, But one of the big things they've been pushing back against um, has been a UN-supported program called Reducing Emissions for Deforestation and Forest Degradation. That's uh, the acronym is RED, R-E-D-D. And basically the idea is that they, uh, the RED initiative pays countries, um, usually poor countries in the global south, to reduce their deforestation and protect their existing forests. And of course, in doing that, you know, to cope with extinction. Um, and it uh, the, the, the place that the capital for that comes from um, are polluting industries in the global north who can offset their emissions by paying essentially this kind of penance and, and getting a, a pardon, you know, to use the language of Catholicism for their bad behavior. But the problem with that is that it not only allows polluting corporations to go on polluting, but when you take a forest and, you know, you tell a, a country in the global south, or at least the leaders of a country in the global south, that it's going to be getting them a lot of money, um, what often happens is that the indigenous people and forest dwelling people who live in that forest, um, but who don't have any kind of official legal title, you know, they just have sort of traditional right of, of living there, they often get pushed out. And uh, big um, international uh, um, logging companies come in, log the forest, and then set up plantations of fast-growing trees like eucalyptus trees or something like that, you know, and say, look, we're preserving the forest um, by setting up this plantation of eucalyptus trees. So it's just an incredibly corrupt system, and demonstrably, it's not dealing with climate change adequately. I mean, eventually, those eucalyptus trees fall over and, (laughs) and rot and release the carbon that they've been storing back into the atmosphere, whereas the traditional old-growth forests that indigenous people and forest-dwelling people live in, you know, they sort of conserve them and, and have done so for many um, centuries, if not millennia. Um, so this, this red scheme, which the UN, um, under pressure from international organizations, often, you know, including many conservation organizations like the Worldwide Fund for Nature and the Nature Conservancy, you know, um, this, this scheme is really very destructive uh, and is part of the broader mindset that we need a kind of green capitalism to deal with the current situation. Um, and I just uh, think it's not going to um, solve the problem. In fact, it's really exacerbating the problem internationally.
You write that many of today's major conservation organizations were established in the last half of the 20th century. The Nature Conservancy in 1951, World Wildlife Fund in 1961, Natural Resources Defense Council in 1970, and Conservation International in 1987. Yet during the same period, a new round of accumulation based on neoliberal principles of unrestrained unrestrained hypercapitalism has engulfed the planet. Do these groups give us the mistaken impression that something is being done that will stop the most dangerous aspects of environmental destruction? Yes, absolutely. That's precisely it. Um, you know, uh, their policy has been traditionally, although things have begun to change a little bit, but their policy has been um, yeah. shaped by the American history, and the U.S. was really um, at the forefront of this during the progressive era, of setting aside natural areas, you know, the great parks, um, like Yellowstone or Yosemite in the United States, and then allowing development to go on pretty much unrestrained all around those parks. Um, and what conservation biologists have shown is that if you create a kind of little isolated island of biodiversity, gradually that island will get less and less biodiverse. In other words, gradually extinction happens. You have to have places that are quite large and that are connected to one another. So some of the more recent initiatives um, in places like the Amazon has been to take these islands and to create you know, pathways between them so that species can migrate. And there's a hope to maintain uh, the biodiversity in these areas if they're not too isolated. But, of course, my argument is a much bigger argument, and that is that we really can't maintain biodiversity in a world in which there is this unrestrained hyper-capitalist exploitation which is based on ceaseless growth. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that um, uh, capital, uh, a system based on ceaseless expansion on a finite planet is going to run up against natural limits. And I think that the extinction that we're seeing right now is one of the prime examples of that. So it's not us, it's capitalism? Well, it's, um, it's, I would say it's the global 1% who are animated by uh, capitalism and often, as we've been talking about, come up with philosophies, uh, ideological systems to justify their exploitation. So, you know, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I want to put the right people on the hook for this, for sure. You write, an anti-capitalist perspective also prevents us from attributing ecocide to humanity as a whole. As we have seen, capitalism has unleashed waves of enclosure, imperialism, warfare, and ecocide over the last 500 years that have benefited a very small segment of humanity while displacing, immiserating, enslaving, and destroying countless numbers of people, animals, and plants. Everyone is not equally responsible for the destruction of nature. Such a sweeping indictment of an undifferentiated humanity is both historically and accurate and politically disempowering. Such a perspective offers us no understanding of the structural forces that generate exploitation and ecocide, no sense of how such forces may push the vulnerable to behave in ways that are antithetical to their long-term interests, and no conception of how people in the relatively affluent global north might act in solidarity with those whom Franz Fanon called the wretched of the earth. Such a perspective is truly hopeless. And that's where you disagree with Elizabeth Colbert, who was on our show back in 2014, who writes, if you want to think about why humans are so dangerous to other species, you can picture a poacher in Africa carrying an AK-47 or a logger in the Amazon gripping an axe, or better still, you can picture yourself 
holding a book in your lap. So how do we all take responsibility for climate change while simultaneously pointing the real blame at others? Isn't blaming others potentially as disempowering as saying we are all equally to blame? Uh, I wouldn't say so. I think that um, we need a social movement that is clear about who's really benefiting from the lopsided and destructive system that we uh, currently inhabit. Um, and I, I think, definitely think that people who live in wealthy countries like the United States um, in general have benefited from a history of ecocide and exploitation of um, uh, species, not only you know, within the United States, but also globally. And we continue to do that. So I do think that um, Elizabeth Colbert's sort of gesture to implicate her reader and to say, you know, um, you need to take some responsibility is an important one. But I think it's just so sweeping. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about the Anthropocene, you know, to say that this is a general condition that has been created by humanity in general really doesn't give us any understanding of what the mechanisms that have generated the various environmental crises that we're living through are and consequently no way to organize. And so I think we need to see how capitalism and imperialism are victimizing people and um, flora and fauna in the global south. Um, Ramachandra Guha calls uh, many people in the global south to ecosystem people because they're very much immediately dependent on the natural world. And I think there are powerful social movements in places um, in the global south that are fighting against this kind of ecocidal history. Um, and Bertha Caceres, uh, who was essentially uh, assassinated in Honduras a few weeks back for opposing dams and industrial development is a really prime example of this. But there are hundreds of people on the front lines in the global south who have been resisting resource extraction um, who are very important. And of course, you know, we're seeing similar kinds of things going on in the United States. You know, the people in Flint, Michigan, who've been poisoned, um, uh, in indigenous people who are resisting pipelines and destruction of their um, uh, their lands. Uh, there are many possibilities for alliances between social movements who see that the current system is unsustainable and are fighting back. Um, and I think it's important to connect people in rural locations to people in cities and to see the common struggles there, and also to connect people um, across national borders and see you know, how we can be in solidarity in a place like uh, a country like the United States with people uh, in places like Honduras and some of the other um, hotspots of biological diversity that we've been talking about. Ashley, is neoliberalism the best system, the most efficient capitalist system yet at pushing us toward extinction? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you if you look at the record of extinction, it, it absolutely is. Um, the, the rate of uh, destruction is really remarkable. And uh, is capitalism inevitably unsustainable is the only thing that can stop capitalism, capitalism itself, that is, its appetite, appetite to consume in order to produce eventually starves itself out? Well, we're, we're um, looking at that possibility. Um, I, I mentioned this quotation by the cultural critic Frederick Jameson, who says it's easier to um, imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. I think that that's the problem that we currently live within. Um, but 
I think that there are going to be huge transformations, and the, the wave of extinction that we're living through is part of that. Um, but, you know, climate change is also a part of it. We're going to see sea levels rising, um, you know, tens of feet and flooding out most of the major coastal cities in the coming uh, 50 to 100 years, according to recent um, scientific research by James Hansen and, and other climatologists. So, it may seem as if we live in a world um, which, you know, Margaret Thatcher uh, famously said, there is no alternative. You know, Tina and the doctrine that there is no alternative to neoliberalism um, is true. But I think that things are going to shift very, very quickly. And capitalism is going to be one of the engines of that shift. But I would say that um, social movements oriented around seeing environmental crisis in relation to the many other injustices of the capitalist world that we inhabit have to also be a major engine of transformation. And we have to make that happen uh, if we want to not only have a better world, but a world um, that's inhabitable for the vast majority of people, plants and animals. So are you more afraid of the future or more excited by it? <laughs> um, gosh, I would say that for me personally, um, I think we have to have hope and that in the struggle, we find hope. So, you know, I think if you sort of just, we need to be aware of what's happening. And when you think about something like extinction, it's very easy to feel as if things are completely apocalyptic and, um, you know, we're just doomed, basically. But what I would say is that we gather a sense of our possibility for radical transformation by engaging in the struggle. So whether it's um, resistance against pipelines or pushing for divestment for fossil fuels or fighting against the contamination of drinking water in urban areas as a result of neoliberal governance, you know, that's where we really gain a sense of our possibility to change things. And so I would say to you and other people listening that if you're feeling completely hopeless as a result of trying to understand the situation we inhabit, the best thing you can do is to get out of that chair that Elizabeth Colbert describes her reading sitting in, reader sitting in, and, and go out and uh, get on the barricade. We've been speaking with Ashley Dawson. He's the author of Extinction, A Radical History. He's a professor of English at the City University of New York. Uh, he was editor of Social Text Online from 2010 until 2014, where he remains as a member of the Social Text Editorial Collective. You can find out more about that organization by going to socialtextjournal.org. You can find out more about Ashley at ashleydawson.info. One last question for you, Ashley, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, as millions of species are snuffed out the biodiversity that supports the planetary ecosystem as we and our ancestors have known it is imperiled. Uh, this catastrophe cannot be stemmed, let alone reversed within the present capitalist culture. We face a clear choice, radical political transformation or deepening mass extinction. Now, climate change denying conspiracy theorists have argued for years that the goal of climate change supporters is for a socialist government being imposed on the whole world, that the conspiracy was to convince all of us that we face a disaster that can only be addressed by upending capitalism, by upending national borders and having one global socialist government. Does the outcome that those climate change deniers feared have to come true in order to slow or stop or reverse climate change? 
absolutely. Uh, it absolutely does. And, and that's the whole point. Climate change deniers, Naomi Klein argues this, are uh, denying climate change because they're aware of the upshot. And it is absolutely that we need to have really significant transformation. The only kind of caveat I would add, though, is that I think that there are all kinds of really important experiments going on on the ground. And there are also many alternatives to capitalism uh, that currently exist. You know, many people who still live in a kind of sustainable way around the planet whose worlds have not yet been uh, incorporated within or smashed by capitalism. Ashley, I really appreciate you being on our show this uh, this week. It's really a fantastic conversation. Your book is fascinating. Again, Ashley Dawson, author of Extinction, A Radical History. You go to our website, you click on the title of the book, it takes you directly to the publisher's page where you can purchase the book directly from them. Ashley is a professor of English at the City University of New York, and you can find out more about him by going to ashleydawson.info. Thanks so much for being on our show this week. It was a really great conversation. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. It's been a privilege. All right. Take care, sir. You too. Bye-bye. And with that, we are back in uh, in the present in 2022. Yeah, and uh, this is still hell. Um... So, and since this is still hell, it is time for the weekly question from hell. And this week's question from hell is, what ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War III? What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War III? Here's a couple of your answers, replies. What is the difference between an answer and a reply, anyway? I ask as a non-native speaker, anyway. Uh, Paolo S. on Facebook writes, Mine is more of a comment than a question. And yes, Paolo, that is indeed an ego trip that, that would, that is worthy of the nuclear apocalypse. Our very own Jeffrey D., writes my answer to the question from hell my answers to the question from hell are so great that i will one day win even though i work at this is hell i see what you're doing there jeffrey and um yeah maybe i mean who knows uh there is no moment of truth speaking of jeffrey this week um nonetheless we will announce the glorious winner of uh, the winning answer, the glorious winner of the winning answer, the the penman or woman or non-binary person or whatever of um, this week's uh, question from hell, the winning answer of the winning answer of this week's Jesus Christ brain, wake up, hello, uh, Borky B writes Romspringer, okay, that that has to be some pretty epic Romspringer. Eric M. writes, they cleaned up the ships after this bomb so that they could find out if they could use them and then they put sailors on board on board them to try them out. How crazy is that? Uh, yes, that is a, a comment on uh, the, the photograph of from Operation Crossroads that I took, um, that I used. That, that, but that is not a valid answer. Just 
Do we need to use pictures that are less evocative for for answers like this? Appreciated, but no. <laughs> uh, Warren L. writes, my ego does not take travel. Everyone must come to it. Well, that's pretty good. That's that's pretty good. I like that. Uh, Laura A. writes, a housewife's midlife crisis. Duck and cover. Yes, duck and cover indeed. Uh, Genevieve H. writes, forcing my way into a Saturday night after party where I wasn't invited by catching a ride with a stranger. Well, yeah, well, that's, um... If maybe if Henry Kissinger is there, you can trigger another world war. Because, for some reason, he's still around. I don't know how I get to Henry Kissinger right now, other than just, you know, the whole thing where this is hell. Um... Yeah, uh, and that's pretty much it from me for today. Um... Let me check. Da, 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 da. Tomorrow we have. Tomorrow we have Lindsay. I do not know. She has not hinted at what interview she will be playing. Um, and on Wednesday, you can tune in here to uh, listen to Dan playing a normal Finkelstein interview or two. Uh, there is no rotten history. There is also no Sep Soapbox. Also, I am rebranding Sep Soapbox because while it's supposed to be a bit of a soapbox, I don't like to center myself this way. I don't have to be in the title. It was supposed to be a working title anyway. It just it just kind of got away from us. But anyway, uh, look forward to the rebranded segment introduced next Monday. Well, we, I will be talking about the Holocaust, because go big, or go home. Uh, yeah, other than that, um, you know, uh, leave us replies to this week's question from hell, either on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisslradio, on our Twitter, twitter.com slash thisslradio. Uh, you can email your answers to this week's question from hell to Seb, that's S-E-B, at thisishell.com. Um, you can send us a homing pigeon. You can uh, send us a couple of smoke signals. You know, um, you can try telepathy, but who knows? We, we might miss that. Um... And you can go to thisshell.com, click on support, and there you can see all the wonderful things you could possibly win if we pick your answer to this week's question from hell as the winning answer of the week. But also, while you're doing that, since you're then already there, you might as just as well buy something, you know, do some good consumption support a good thing with the money that you've earned at the job that you probably if we're honest don't like that much because after all this is hell and with that Seb the producer that makes you go this guy again is signing off and I will you will hear me if you want to. If you want to become a Patreon, go to uh, 
patreon.com slash this is hell radio this is hell radio this is hell anyway go to this is hell.com click on support and see what our patreon name is ah okay okay um and uh yeah no it is actually patreon.com slash this is hell you go to patreon.com slash this is hell and subscribe you can Listen to the Patreon interviews, the Patreon episodes, and uh, if you if you want to hear more of my voice and um, more of Chuck's voice, obviously, uh, then subscribe, and uh, you will get a new episode this Thursday. Well, it's actually kind of a fake out because we already recorded the episode. We're just gonna broadcast it, or rather, upload it to Patreon on Thursday. Uh yeah. And uh, that will be the next time you can hear this voice. Um, otherwise, if you want to hear this voice live again, tune in uh, next Monday. No, wait a minute. Next Tuesday. Next week we're doing Tuesday to Thursday, and then Friday is the Patreon. Anyway, tune in next week. Tune in next week. For all of the things... For all the things that make you go... My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>